Hi there, welcome to a special Rook series assessing the Pahlavi dynasty, 40 years after the death of the last Shah of Iran. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is a three-part series based on interviews we conducted in 2020. On the 40th anniversary year of the death of the Shah, we wanted to use the occasion to take stock, if you will, of where we are at in understanding the history of Iran in the last century, the place of the Pahlavi dynasty, and the precipitance of the 1979 Islamic Revolution. We assembled a group of three well-known thinkers who have all deeply studied the Pahlavi era and have differing opinions on the legacy of Mohammad Reza Shah four decades after his death in exile. In this part one of the series, we hear from Dr. Abbas Milani. In part two, we will get a perspective from writer and historian Andrew Scott Cooper. And in part three, historian and author Mohammad Amini. I should note that this is a special Rook series. For our regular episodes of Rook, we invite you to visit our website, rookmedia.com, where you can find all of our editions of the program, the guests we've had on our ongoing mission to build an audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. You can also help us out and become a patron of our program, if you like what we do, by pressing on the Support Us button at the top of the website. Okay, let's get to part one of our series. As well as being one of the best-known intellectuals in the Iranian diaspora and an acclaimed author of books, articles, and compendiums dealing with Iran and Iranian history, Professor Abbas Milani is the author of the definitive biography of the last Shah of Iran, entitled The Shah, published in 2011, tracing the late monarch's dramatic rise and fall and his role in the creation of the contemporary Islamic Republic. In Dr. Milani's comprehensive and gripping account based on archival material, we see the Shah's life as one filled with contradiction. He built schools, increased equality for women, and greatly reduced the power of the Shia clergy. He made Iran a global power and nationalized his country's many natural resources. But he was deeply conflicted and insecure in his powerful role, intolerant of political dissent, oversaw a deadly police state force, and was eventually overthrown by the very people whose loyalty he so desperately sought. Dr. Milani also reveals the complex and sweeping road that would bring the United States and Iran to where they are today. But in the 10 years since he published that book, has the image and legacy of the Pahlavi dynasty shifted in the popular imagination of the diaspora? And if so, how? Abbas Milani is the director of Iranian studies at Stanford University and the professor in the Division of International Comparative Studies. He's one of the founding co-directors of the Iran Democracy Project and until 1986 taught at Tehran University's Faculty of Law and Political Science, where he was also a member of the board of directors of the university's Center for International Relations. Professor Abbas Milani joined me from Palo Alto, California. Hello, sir. Uh, hello to you, and thank you very much for your wonderfully kind uh, introduction. Uh, I remember the last time we talked, the book had uh, just come out, and I had the good fortune of coming to Canada and appearing in your program, and I was as impressed then with how prepared you were, how 
brilliant your questions were, as I am now grateful for your very uh, kind introduction. Well, we're not sure the questions are going to be brilliant this time, so you, 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 <laughs> you can hedge your bets. Let's see how it goes. Uh, I also remember that last interview that we did, and I greatly appreciated it, and I'm so happy to be talking to you again. So let me uh, start with uh, a question that I'm going to apologize for in advance for being some, somewhat protracted, but I want to set the context. As we see, Abbas, the, 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 the statues coming down in America— today, as, as they have in other parts of the world. It is once again clear that the way we see history and the characters in it is fluid and can morph over time. The events of the past are rebooted or rehabilitated or, or reframed through the prism of each new era. So it's hard to ever settle on a truth, it seems to me. And part of the problem is that as time goes on, we get further away from the firsthand accounts of events. And even those who were there can have evolving memories of their experiences. So is it fair to say that no historical account is ever safe in its position as the definitive one? And for the purposes of this discussion, is it then inevitable that the way the Shah is seen is going to morph over time? In terms of the answer to your first question, I think, uh, except a handful of historians who believe in a kind of a positivist uh, version of history, where they have facts and they connect, collect facts and they arrive at definitive final uh, answers, uh, I think now the consensus in historical and even social sciences uh, is that uh, facts of history are contingent uh, in the sense, exactly as you say, uh, they're subject to time, they're subject to who we are, they're subject to what we know, things keep evolving, uh, our values keep changing, our access to data uh, changes, uh, newly documents become declassified, newly memoirs become classified, new relics become uh, uncovered, and thus our notion of history changes. And I think that absolutely holds true for the Shah, as it holds true for every historical figure. It also in the case of the Shah, I think he's helped with the fact that uh, in this uh, revisionism, much of what we thought we knew about the Shah was essentially based on ideological certitudes the certitudes of uh, his uh, defenders who say Iran was a heaven, literally, or somebody has written a book called The Fall of Heaven, not from heaven, of heaven, uh, and the ideological constructs of his enemies who say Iran was absolutely a bleak, a despotic police state, the Shah was a lackey of the U.S., nothing could ever happen. The reality is far more complex, and in that polarized, polarizing sort of Manichaean description, the character of the Shah, the accomplishments of the Shah, the gray history of the Shah is much, much more, I think, positive than what either of those two uh, uh, polarities indicate. Because the polarity that says it was all good doesn't really uh, register well. That's why I think that gray narrative that says he accomplished much, 
but he also had some flaws. That, I think, is emerging very clearly. Let me come to that. I want to talk, we're going to spend some time talking about the Shah's character and, and these different narratives uh, and historiographical approach, if you will, looking at different uh, versions of this that have, have now come out. But just sticking on the, the, the changing, the shifting, the evolving narratives, it, it also seems to me that this is amplified. I mean, Iranians, we seem to have conspiracy theories in our DNA, but we are living in a moment, even in North America, around the world, uh, as a product of, uh, you know, whether it's Russian interference in an American election or uh, uh, trying to believe what we see on Twitter or Instagram or not. We're living in a, in a, in a moment where everyone seems particularly on guard about what they're seeing and in, in some cases feel the liberty to suggest they disbelieve what we would call facts. So as an aside, I actually had someone say to me recently, thinking about talking to you, I, uh, someone who, who I suppose wants a return to the Pahlavi dynasty said, but did the, re- did the revolution really happen though? Uh, he said, he said how do you know there were really that many people in the streets? So this is a um, an emerging disbelief in what can be found, not just in history books, but actually videos of that period. Uh, it, it must be hard to then do your job in that kind of moment. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, the danger in what I uh, told you in my answer, the danger in accepting the contingency of facts, facts of history, is that it opens the door to a kind of uh, chaotic relativism where everyone has then the right to say, okay, this is my version of facts. No, your version of facts, you're not entitled to your own facts. You're entitled to your interpretation of facts. There is no doubt that there was a revolution in Iran. There is a lot of debate on how many people actually participate in it. The most credible historical narrative that I have seen, for example, uh, a a book published by Harvard uh, University Press, says actually 11% of the Iranian population participated actively in the revolution. You would say 11%, but then the numbers for the French Revolution and the Bolshevik Revolution are even smaller. The percentage are smaller. So was it a massive consensual uh, overthrow of the Shah's regime? No. Was it a revolution? I think it's one of the more consequential revolutions. The consequences have almost all been, in my view, bad for Iran, but it's been one of the most consequential revolutions. It has led to the biggest, uh, talking about diaspora, it has actually created for the first time an Iranian diaspora. Yes. Now, three and a half to four million Iranians live outside Iran. Well, I've, I've heard seven to eight million. So I, I guess we disagree uh, on that too, uh, as, uh, as Iranians. We, you know, Stanford, just uh, the Iranian uh, studies program has a program called Vision 2040. And they try to really get at the numbers in the most uh, sort of granular way they can get. Right. Uh, the number they come up with is three and a half. I, I have heard the seven million too, but even the three and a half, Three and a half is not an insubstantial number. Right. And remember, this is not a random three and a half percent, uh, million. This is some of the most educated. These are the people who thought they could make it outside Iran. That means at least 
they knew some language, they had some connection, they're disproportionately more educated than almost every population they have joined. They're much more educated than the American population in terms of the number of degrees, uh, high, uh, bachelor's, master's, and PhDs. So this is a big chunk of Iranian intellectual capital and financial capital that has left the country. Yes. And then the devastation inside Iran, the displacement inside Iran, the lost economic opportunities inside Iran. Iran right now, if this revolution hadn't happened, would be, if it had gone the trajectory that Iran had in 1975, Iran would be somewhere where South Korea is. You've said a number of things there that I want to pick up on, especially um, the growth of the diaspora and the implications of that. Um, but uh, as I say, I want let, let me stick with the character of the Shah. I mean, and it's interesting that you should mention that this book, "In the Fall of Heaven," by Andrew Scott Cooper. Um, let me let me speak to that. This is a 2016 book on the Pahlavi dynasty's final days, because Andrew Scott Cooper portrays uh, Iran's last monarch as a as a frustrated democrat arguing that the Shah's liberalization program begun during the final years of his reign was just ill-timed, right when American support for the Shah under pressure from human rights campaigners was wavering. Uh, What do you say to those who believe history has vindicated the Shah's intentions in wanting to bring about democratic reforms that were legitimate actions but not sufficiently recognized at the time? Uh, I would say... uh History has vindicated him, as far as I understand it, in the sense that he was trying to accomplish not democratic reforms, but he was trying to create a modern Iran. He was a champion of modernity, which I think has been the major challenge of Iran and the Islamic world for 200 years. The Shah and his father wanted to create a modern Iran, except the democratic component of it. They both believed. And some people, I think, are now even agreeing with this part of their proposition. They both believe that Iran, the traditional forces in Iran, the power of the clergy, the power of the landed aristocracy uh, is so entrenched that unless they had an organized sort of uh, authoritarian center to the detriment of the democratic aspect of the Iranian constitution, they couldn't make those changes. The Shah more or less has said this several times. But has he been vindicated in the sense of trying to create a modern, prosperous, uh, more or less egalitarian in terms of religion, in terms of sex, in terms of uh, a private public life, in terms of the role of women in society? in terms of tolerance for religious minorities like the Baha'is, like the Jews, like the Christians, the Armenians. I think he has been vindicated. Uh, He he was, of course, very fortunate in having one of the most incompetent regimes to follow him. But even on his own merit, he would stand, I think, vindicated in many of these aspects. You know, when I interviewed you about your book, The Shah, in 2011, um, I went back and watched that interview. There's a there's a point in the interview where I'm quite captivated by your notion that the Shah had not been authoritarian enough 
to save his monarchy. I, I say to you, in fact, you mean the same guy whose downfall is often blamed upon his authoritarianism was not a dictator enough? And you, and you say yes. Um, this uh, Andrew Scott Cooper takes this to a, another level, and he says the Shah is fundamentally misunderstood, that he was actually a, a shy and modest man who was never really comfortable with any kind of authoritarianism. What do you think of that emerging narrative? Well, uh, first of all, that, that is not a new narrative. Uh, I remember that uh, uh, conversation as well. I didn't have, uh, I didn't go back to watch it again, but I remember our conversation, some parts of it. Uh, but the notion that the Shah was uh, a timid by nature, uh, I, I quote, uh, I think it's either British or American diplomat. In 1952, I quote him. Um, uh, I don't quote him in 1952. I quote the document from 1952 right. that says, Shah is a Hamlet-like character. So the notion that the Shah was indecisive, the notion that he was shy, and the notion that he was private, the notion that he was, in a sense, a reluctant king, uh, those are very much uh, part of uh, my argument about his character. His character was this uh, shy person, uh, very much reticent to use violence, uh, very much reticent to uh, for uh, uh, use uh, extreme forms of coercion, for example. Although under his regime, some of these coercions were used. And I still believe that if he had used the full power of his uh, military, for example, in the last few months of his reign, he might have been able to at least survive for a few more years. Uh, so, you know, he was not authoritarian when he needed to be authoritarian because he, I think he was, uh, and I, uh, I'm almost sure we had that conversation, I think he was, you know, what uh, in political science we call an authoritarian personality. That's the personality that is very assertive when he or she feels empowered yes. and is very hesitant when she or he feels overpowered but it is hard to connect the dots sometimes i mean i'm i'm w without taking a position on this at all i i to to to, to hear while well, he was shy and timid he really didn't want to do these things I, I mean he presided over a regime that put you in jail right <laughs> for having an opinion uh, or for a dissenting opinion so the shy and timid part is is hard to figure out um not that 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 wasn't necessarily his character but but how he enabled that kind of uh, sabak etc to happen then it was an evolving uh, image evolving reality you know when he comes to power in 1941 he's a different person than he is in 1975 and he's a very different person than 1978 it's hard to connect the dots, as you say, if we need neat descriptions of these historical yes. figures. Uh, they often don't uh, satisfy our craving for neat explanations. Uh, they have complicated characters. They, you know, the Shah was one of the most uh, consequential leaders in the history of Iran. In Affording women equal rights. Uh, I, I said in my book, and I absolutely believe that, that the women's movement in Iran was a, a movement of grassroots, but both the father and the son recognized that you can't build a modern Iran without affording equality to women. But when you listen to some of his conversations, 
when you look at some of the aspects of his private life, when you look at the interview with Barbara Walters, with the queen sitting right next to him, you ask yourself, how can someone who is this champion have these uh, misogynist views? How can someone who is the champion of women, uh, equal rights, and he was, and should be commended, have this despicable view that women are inferior, they can't even produce good chefs. I'm almost verbatim quoting. Because we think if someone is a champion of uh, equal rights, for example, in private life they must be absolute pure, uh, we are shocked. But look at the private life of Martin Luther King. Look at the PhD dissertation of Martin Luther King. Right. There are hard points to connect, but he's a giant historical figure and must be uh, known for what he has accomplished. But as historians, we also must point to whatever quirks of character we find. I wonder if your, when you talk about neat explanations, I wonder if your desire to never um, fall into the category of just uh, of blanket explanations or neat explanations, as you call them, uh, has actually done a service to the legacy of, of, of the Shah. Stick with me, if you will. I mean, in other words, despite your, your I, I went and reread a bunch of the Shah, uh, your 2011 book, your critique is strong. It's not like you're soft on him. But would you say your work, such as the book The Shah, or your um, hugely popular biography of uh, Prime Minister Amir Abbas Hoveda, uh, given the comprehensive nature of these books, these nuanced characters, do you think you've had, you've inadvertently maybe had an impact on the rehabilitation of the Pahlavi era? I absolutely think so. And I, I don't just say this out of the, my own ego. You know, there's a whole narrative inside Iran promulgated by the Iranian regime saying that uh, I was paid by the royalists to write these two books to rehabilitate the Shah. They, they, you know, they have written literally half of a journal was dedicated to saying that I, my responsibility, the spies, the intelligence, they have all con given me money to write these books to rehabilitate the Shah. On the other hand, um, I, I can literally point you to a series of articles, 12 articles in a royalist journal in London that said, the CIA, the KGB, the Mossad, the oil companies, China, Russia have all paid me money <laughs> to right. uh, sully the image of the Shah by writing the Hoveda book. Both of them are nonsense. But I absolutely believe that if you describe that gray, not neat, complicated, conflicted Shah, if you're fair to his accomplishments, but also fair to points of criticism, you will have done him a great favor. I, I think these two books you mentioned are the most pro-Shah books uh, in terms of the impact they've had. I, I honestly uh, uh, believe that. I know a lot of my leftist friends will hate me for saying this, uh, but I think that you're absolutely right. Uh, that is what their job is, and that's what history does. You know, uh, particularly when you have a figure who has been so much maligned, so much caricatured, when at the hands of the opposition, of which I was for a while a member of, 
has been reduced to such cardboard characters when you actually write his history, not his hagiography. Some of these accounts, and uh, I have to say, I, I refer to the fall of heaven. Uh, I, I don't want to gossip. I have actually written a review of it. It's yes, in Wall Street the Journal. Wall Street Journal. People I read can it. go and read it. <laughs> I, I've given my two bits on the book. Yes. Uh, You're not a fan of that book. No, I'm not, because I, I don't think that kind of a book, I absolutely don't think that kind of book both does justice to history, and I don't think it does justice to the Shah. You know, I, I can give you some numbers in terms of how many uh, hundreds of thousands of times that book of mine in Persian has been downloaded inside Iran and read. Yes. How many thousands of copies have been published as a samizdat, although it's 600 pages has been published and distributed in Iran. Because people know when somebody is gingerly, desperately, uh, haltingly, but honestly trying to figure out what has happened without any a priori praise or pan. But just as an aside, uh, Dr. Milani, you, uh when you talk about the different reactions, uh, the different theories uh, on, uh, you know, you've been paid by the monarchists or you're working with the CIA, or I want to ask you about that because just talking about you coming on the show with uh, with some people, I've received some interesting reactions from Iranians in different quarters. I mean, no one denies your prominence as an academic and as a voice in the diaspora, and you obviously have many fans, as I'm sure you know, but. But there will be people who will say, oh, Abbas Milani is so polarizing. Abbas Milani is soft on the regime. Abbas Milani is a neocon who's pro-sanctions and maximum pressure. These, this conflicting gossip, to be sure, which I'll bet none of which is news to you. How do you, how do you respond to it? Does it hurt you? Does it bother you? Not at all. It, you know, uh, it doesn't bother me because uh, uh, it's gossip. And it's uh, almost always nonsense. Uh, and it's nonsense uttered by people who don't take the uh, trouble of actually reading what I have said. For example, on maximum pressure. You mentioned maximum pressure. Yes. I participated with a colleague in uh, Intelligence Squared. You, you have seen those uh, debates, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, Intelligence Squared are debates that are organized by this organization. and They get... Uh, usually four people, and they debate a proposition. Uh, two side, uh, one side defending, one side opposing. And then at the end, people vote. It's a very popular. Some of their shows have several million viewers. I actually took the proposition that maximum pressure is a wrong policy and has failed. This was five months ago. And my uh, interlocutor on the other side was uh, General McMaster. Everything I have written, and people, you know, uh, if they want to find out what I have actually said, that's all on public record. Uh, I, I have been against the idea of in using sanctions that hurt the people of Iran. There was nonsense talked about, about how I am a neocon. Read what the New Yorker wrote, read what the New York Times wrote about what role I had in opposing war against Iran. These are matters of public record. Uh, so the fact that somebody there uh, in some conversation says, well, he's a polarizing, the Iranian regime just recently said, 
specific reference to me that uh, I, I am their most intransigent foe. Something of a badge of honor, really. In, in uh, uh, that's absolutely a badge right. of honor. I take that as a badge of honor. But these people who say he's soft on, on the regime, I absolutely, right here publicly, invite them to bring one other academician who has been as systematically as uh, unsparingly critical of the status quo in Iran. You know, there was a moment in 2010... Speaking, uh, I don't know if you were at Congress or somebody, I, I'm trying to remember the where you said something like it, some sanctions or, you know, can be effective, but they have to be as effective as they were in South Africa. You said, you said something that I know people have latched onto. You probably know the reference I'm talking to. But no, absolutely. I, I know exactly what it was. Uh, I was uh, testifying before Foreign Relations Committee of uh, Congress of the House. And the debate at the time was the possibility of imminent attack on Iran. And I was saying that attacking Iran is the worst thing you could do. Attacking Iran is going to consolidate this regime for a very long time, and it hurts the wrong people. Targeted smart sanctions, hitting the regime in its pockets, is going to uh, be the way to bring this regime down. Yes, that. That's absolutely true. But to say that uh, I'm a neocon, where neocons have been advocating attacking Iran, for example, for the last 12 years, and I've been absolutely categorically, unquestionably uh, against invasion of Iran. So does it bother me that some people say absolutely not? Uh, you know, uh, this goes with the territory. Okay, uh, well, let me, said, let, let me ask you about the territory. As an aside to the aside, because I'm, I'm leading us down a, a path that is slightly moving away from talking about the Shah, but, but why is it seemingly, um, how do I put this, the disposition of our community to want to wanna, uh, take people down or at the very least label them or be suspicious of their intentions? What, why is that in our DNA? Well, first of all, I don't think it's in our DNA. I also don't think uh, you said something else about our DNA. I'm not sure it's in our DNA to believe in conspiracy theories. If you look at Iranian history, conspiracy theories become a sickness and a part of our behavior, not our DNA. Essentially, in late 19th century, when Iran loses its sovereignty, when people feel humiliated, when you feel humiliated, when you don't know what's happening to you, when you have lost your faith that God determines everything, you need some explanation, and you place uh, the trust you had in the hidden hand of God, now in the hidden hand of England or hidden hand of communism. But th this tendency to bring people down uh, also, I think, is part of, uh, particularly in diaspora, it's part of the... the uh, anxieties of exile. I mean, read uh, Theodor Adorno's Minimum Moralia, his memoirs of exile. Read Hannah Arendt's memoirs about what German exile, some of them fleeing Nazi uh, death machines, were doing to one another in this U.S. Read about how one of the greatest literary critics probably of 20th century, Walter Benjamin, committed suicide because of short-sightedness of maybe this Theodore Adorno and not giving him $500 that he needed to escape to Spain. I mean, we read these things and we realize exile 
is the shits. Yeah. It brings the worst out of people. And in our community, it exists. Uh, for every person that has said something like you quoted about me, there have been hundreds, hundreds, who in much more meaningful ways have supported our efforts. Look at what we have created at Stanford. We have created a hundred percent, a hundred percent with the help of the Iranian-American community. We haven't accepted a single penny from the U.S. government. We have raised a lot of money, many, many millions for the Iranian Studies Program. We have created an archive that is now probably unmatched anywhere. That's good to it hear. It goes from Zahedi to Golshiri to Meskoub. Why? Because the bulk of the community knows something is happening here. So am I bothered that somebody gossips uh, after having a bottle of wine that he's a neocon? No. <laughs> That's his right or her right. There, there was no indication that they'd had a bottle of wine. Maybe a glass or two. Uh, a glass. And, 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 by, and you caught me on my language. When I say DNA, I'm actually not being uh, pedantically, I'm not saying it, we, it is in our DNA. I don't actually believe that. It, I'm saying we are culturally socialized to be that way uh, somehow. And and frankly, it's it bothers me. I don't like our tendency towards conspiracy uh, theories. I grew up around it, and uh, no, you know everything was Everything was everything is about some sort of theory, and I do understand the roots of it in the way you've just explained it, and I understand that it's not biologically perhaps inside us, but I think it is something that is indicative in our community. I mean, the only reason I, I, I wasn't trying to pick a word and uh, pick on you, but there are people who actually say it is in our DNA. <laughs> <laughs> they, they really, I mean, there are, there are scholars who say this. There are people who have said, you know, the Iranians have dust. And so you read some of these British, for example, diplomatic archives, diplomatic dispatches. Sir Reader Bullard, we're talking about the Shah. Sir Reader Bullard, the British diplomat, uh, ambassador in Iran in 1941. He wrote, uh, um, again, I've quoted this in the book. He said, uh, these Iranian people, you know, DNA didn't exist there. It's in their genes. Sooner or later, they're going to raise uh, this Reza Shah to the level of a Napoleon. Right. We have to be aware that these people are short-sighted. They're incapable of uh, rational thinking. I'm almost verbatim quoting a diplomat whose advisor at the time was uh, Anne Lampton. So, People do have this tendency to reduce us to what they think defines us. Like the character of the Shah, the Iranian nation has a complicated character. It mm -hmm. has produced some of the best the world has known, and it has produced some of the worst the world has known. When we talk about the character of the Shah, and when we talk about uh, emerging narratives around the Shah, uh, so much of this has to do with, of course, the revolution. And let me zoom in on the revolution for a couple of questions and, and get uh, catch up with where Abbas Milani is at on some of these questions. Uh, you, you've said with regard to, to Khomeini and the Islamic Revolution, I want to quote you, the Shah never saw where the threat came from. He wasn't alone. The CIA didn't. MI6 didn't. Um, 
from what we know today of the Western intelligence analysis at the time, it is clear that for the CIA and MI6, the Islamists could be the best bet to counter what they saw as the danger of the Soviet Union, right? So it seems they did recognize the possibilities with Khomeini. What what do you make of that? Well, absolutely. Uh, they, uh, as I said in the book, and since then, there have been a lot of declassified uh, documents that completely show that the West, and it wasn't just the MI6 and the CIA, the French were involved in the same, uh, I think, delusion. The Germans were. <clears throat> the idea was to use Islamists uh, as an antidote to communism. Again, to give the context, this was the Cold War period. And uh, the Americans, even after this Islamic revolution in Iran, they still believed they could use the Islamists against communism in uh, Afghanistan. They began pouring billions of dollars into defending, supporting, training, arming uh, Islamist forces because they thought, and they were right, that these guys are good fighters against uh, communism. What they didn't know, and 1979 made that very clear, is that these people might be very good at communist fighting, but they also have claims to power. And once they come to power, it's going to be very difficult to dislodge them. That lesson is one of the, I think, uh, inadvertent consequences of uh, the Iranian revolution. But that error, and it, it isn't, again, I, uh, because I don't like to only blame, it's part of the conspiracy theory, I don't like to just blame the Americans and the British. Right. The Iranian intelligentsia, the Iranian opposition was profoundly mistaken. Well, here's let me, let me ask you about the, the Iranian intelligentsia, because what still perplexes many Iranians, especially I think of younger Iranians who, I mean, I was alive at the time of the revolution, a, a kid who grows up in the diaspora and wasn't alive and, and is hearing about this revolution. It's confounding that the so-called progressive forces, the intelligentsia in Iran, aligned with Khomeini who was the embodiment of traditionalism and religious dogma. You you have pointed some blame at the Shah for giving religious fundamentalists some free reign. You've also said, as many others have, that, that Khomeini did a masterful job of portraying himself as somehow progressive whilst he was in exile before the revolution. But what does it say about Iranians in general, and especially intellectuals at the time, that there was this kind of collective hoodwink of everyone who had democratic intentions? Again, I, I, in the Shah book, I also blame the opposition for uh, allowing this hoodwink uh, to happen and having a very instrumental approach. The primary example for me is uh, an Islamist terrorist by the name of Nawab Safavi, who created the Fadayan Islam, the devotees of Islam. Uh, in 1945-46, he begins organized effort he starts earlier it fails but in 45 46 he goes after killing Kasravi and eventually kills Kasravi for your uh, audience who might not know Kasravi Kasravi is clearly the most important secular historian of his time and is the person who still 50 odd years after his death 60 years after his death has written probably the most daring critique of Shiism hmm. the most daringly erudite critique of Shiism. The Islamists went after him in essentially what was to be a kind of a prelude 
to the fatwa against Salman Rushdie. They chopped them to pieces. And then they issued a proclamation that whoever criticizes us, this is what's going to happen to them. And the Iranian democratic forces aligned with this very organization in the nationalization movement. Mossadegh's supporters aligned with this force, a member of the same terrorist organization, assassinated the Iranian sitting prime minister, Razmara. And everybody, including Mossadegh, supported this assassination effort. So uh, when we say the uh, CIA was hoodwinked, no, Iranian intelligentsia was hoodwinked. Iranian political forces were hoodwinked. Some of them had the illusion, because they were children of the uh, Enlightenment, mm -hmm. they were Marxists, they believed religion is the opium of the masses, and its age has ended. They believed religion is outmoded. We will use them, and when we don't need them, we'll discard them. We can manipulate them, and the the, the reverse we, is what ends up happening. The, we, when exactly. you, when we talk about hoodwinking, we had we'd had um, uh, Dr. Mansur Farhang on the show about a month ago, and you know he tells this story. It's quite heartbreaking, really, of sitting with Khomeini, and Khomeini uh, says, "Oh, I'm, I can't wait to get back to home and teach." You know, and Mansur Farhang says, "I was so relieved. I thought this guy doesn't have any intentions of power. He he, he wants to go and, uh, of course, he was uh, naive or wrong or, or um, treacherous or whatever you want to uh, label Mansur Farhang in that moment. But um, uh, but do you think Ayatollah Khomeini always knew what he wanted to do, or that he simply got into a situation, saw an opportunity, and?" Saw a chance for power and couldn't turn it down? Both. Uh, he knew always what he wanted to do uh, because uh, I told you about Kasravi, the person that actually put Nawab Safavi on the job of killing Kasravi was Khomeini. Khomeini wrote his first book against Kasravi. And in that book, he says, isn't there somebody man enough? And his misogyny is clearly evident in the term, is, isn't there somebody mad in, man enough to go kill this guy? This guy is a Mofsed of Elaz. So that's his first book. In 1971, he publishes a series of uh, lectures. He doesn't supposedly publish it, his students publish it, but he delivers a series of lectures where he says, the rule of uh, jurist council, the Laite Fari, is the only legitimate government on earth for Muslims. It doesn't need popular support. It doesn't need popular sovereignty. But Allah is the sovereign. He knew what he wanted. But in the months before the revolution, he didn't think at all possible to realize that. That's why he engaged in what he called khud'ed, dissimulation, lying. He lied to the Americans. We now have the minutes of discussions between Yazdi and uh, American representatives. Uh, I have published part of the letter he wrote to Carter. We have the minutes of many of their discussions with the Americans, uh, where they, Khomeini and his allies say, we're going to essentially create a democratic uh, uh, Iran, uh, a little more religious than what we have been used to, but it's essentially something like a national front government. 
That's why he appoints Wazirgan, because that was part of the promise he made to the Americans. And the Americans right. were hoodwinked, partly because they didn't know Islam, partly because many of Iranian opposition figures who were talking to the Americans were telling them, don't listen to what the Shah says about Khomeini. He's really a national figure. It's not a religious figure. And they bought this. And the government of Bazargan was appointed. But as soon as the government of Bazargan came, you now know that they had this remarkable network that was keen on seizing power. The minute he thought he could realize his dream, he went after it. Khomeini, I, I can only compare him to Lenin in terms of uh, the tenacity of his ideological belief. But he had a maximum program and a minimum program. Maximum program was Velayat al-Faqi. Minimum program was the overthrow of the Shah. But he wouldn't, Khomeini, would not have been able to seduce the intellectuals if they weren't uh, sitting, if you were, I mean, you were part of them, sitting in opposition to the Shah already. And I had the occasion to read your autobiography, Tales of Two Cities, this week. Uh, um, uh, it was it's a it's such a rich and beautiful book. Uh, you you were in Iran in the late 1970s. You had gone back there, and I'm, I want to get into some of your story in a moment. But on this point about intellectuals, you speak of returning back to Iran in '75, and at one point you you become a ghostwriter for the Queen for a stint, and and you say. The Pahlavi regime was deeply enamored with intellectuals. But then you also say they were deeply despised by most intellectuals. Explore that paradox for us. Uh, I think what happened uh, after 1953, when Mossadegh was overthrown and the Shah came back to power, a rift began in Iran. A rift between the intelligentsia uh, and the Shah's regime, whether you were left or the center, uh, and even some of the on the right, uh, they felt that the Shah, rightly or wrongly, it doesn't matter, that's what they felt. The Shah was brought back to power by the Americans and the British, and it's illegitimate. That rift was really never healed. They were a handful literally a handful of Iranian prominent intellectuals who saw that this kind of a, a entrenched rancor is damaging. Khalil Maliki was one of them. Ibrahim Golestan was one of them. These were people who said, we should criticize the Shah, but if he's doing something that is pushing the country forward, we shouldn't be uh, in kind of permanent uh, disengagement from him. There is a remarkable report an American diplomat writes in 1965. It comes to Iran. Uh, and I've quoted this in the Shah book. He says, it's very surprising. The Shah has made many changes in Iran, has made many reforms. But in private, there are very, very few people, even in his government, who are willing to support him because they think, you know, he's not legitimate. So <clears throat> the intelligentsia, the intellectuals, really went out of their way to keep their distance. And I think, to me, that is part of uh, the historical responsibility of the intellectuals. <clears throat> but the Shah also had this very interesting, uh, as I described it there, he loved the intellectuals, he loved to be approved by the intellectuals, yes. but he also despised them. He called them 
intellectuals, you know, shit uh, thinkers. Uh, he, you know, he thought that they are phony, but he also needed the love of these phony people. It occurs to me, as I think about it, that the coalition that brought Mossadegh to power, albeit briefly, um, has a resonance to the same kind of coalition of varying forces of Iranian society that end up overthrowing the Shah in 79. It's that you could almost draw a line. Uh, or do, do you think? Or what can you? What can we learn from that? Well, absolutely. I, I, I think uh, I, I will add two more points to your very uh, brilliant uh, line. If you go to 1905-07, there's a coalition that overthrows despotism and tries to create constitutional revolution in Iran. More or less, that same coalition comes together and supports Mossadegh. More or less, that same coalition comes together and overthrows the Shah. More or less, that same coalition exists today, minus the religious forces, the conservative religious forces, and is trying to overthrow this regime. Because it has taken a 140-year effort, still unrequited, to create a secular, democratic, law-abiding Iran. The future is this generation and this coalition. There's remarkable irony to this. This coalition in 1905-07, the religious leadership was in the hands of people called Lakhnaini, who were very enlightened. The opposition to this movement was a clergy reactionary to the core by the name of Sheikh Fadlullah Nuri. Fast forward to 1979, that same coalition of constitutional revolution was now led by Khomeini, who was a follower not of the enlightened clergy, but of Sheikh Fadlullah Nuri. That's one of the remarkable ironies of Iranian history. There is an explanation for it, and I tried to give it in the Shabbos. But now, that same coalition, now stronger than ever, now with more women in leading roles than ever. In fact, I think for the first time in this 140 years, women are now the leading force of this coalition. They're trying still to realize that dream, a secular, democratic, law-abiding Iran where public sovereignty is with the people, not with anyone else. Just sticking with that Mossadegh era for a second, that some of these classified documents that you've had access to are are extraordinarily revealing. Uh, and and I suppose one of the most shocking re- revelations is is it's generally assumed that the Shah was a U.S. puppet. But we learn through your book that many of the current regime's policies, like acquiring nuclear capabilities, were in fact started when he was in power. Where, where did the puppet narrative begin? Is that back to fifty three and Mossadegh? Very much so. A little earlier than that, uh, the Tudor Party, uh, the Soviet-supported uh, Tudor Party, uh, had begun this uh, story, but it becomes sort of the mantra of the opposition after 53. Uh, and again, in spite of overwhelming evidence that in the 70s, for example, uh, from 65 to 75, there's overwhelming archival evidence that the Shah is acting very much independently on almost every issue, and on many issues is confronting the U.S. and the British. But the opposition, 
absolutely was adamant that the Shah is a lackey of uh, U.S. imperialism and secondarily of British imperialism, has no independence and other corollary facts. I want to ask you, if it's okay, I want to ask you about your time in jail uh, back in Iran. In the late 1970s, you were arrested by Sabak. You go to jail for a period, including time at the infamous Evin prison. Uh, You're accused of being some kind of terrorist because of your involvement with a group that was opposed to the Shah. When you look back at that time through the prism of 2020, Abbas Milani, how did it change you? How did it affect the perspective you have today? Well, a couple of points. Uh, we weren't ever accused of being a terrorist. We were accused of, because we weren't, uh, we were accused of being part of a s- small student group that advocated what they called collectivist ideology. That was against the law in Iran. You could go to jail. And that's the clause that they used against us. So it's a very important distinction. There were people at the time engaging in what today we call terrorists. In right, those days, right. they called it guerrilla activity. Uh, but we were never part of that. We never believed in using uh, weapons in that way. You know, uh, before I even, uh, uh, and I described this in Tales of Two Cities because you kind of referred to it. You know, very soon after I went to Iran, as I was uh, teaching at the university, I realized that much of what we said uh, about the Iranian society that kind of a bleak, Manichaean view of the Shah's regime really doesn't fit with reality. That reality has changed. Iran has changed. In many ways, for good, but in many ways, in uh, the traditions, in patterns that are untenable. Now, very soon I realized, I really did, uh, and, and I don't say this now, as I said, I wrote it 20 years ago, I realized that the status quo in that form is untenable, but I also realized virtually everything we said as an opposition was nonsense, that the Shah can't make any change, hasn't made any change. The Iranian society was very different. And I I realized that as a university professor, I could really do much of what I wanted to do in part of this rather silly small uh, student group. Uh, But before I could disengage, I was arrested. And the year that I was there uh, was profoundly educational because uh, I was uh, for six months of it with some of the people who would become leaders of the Islamic Revolution later on. Yes. uh, From Rafsanjani and Montazari, Mahdavi, almost everybody. And some of the very prominent leftists. And I realized how much ideology uh, and uh, the certainties of ideology and certainties of ideology don't fit with my understanding of the Iranian society. How you could be, to me, I realize, I, I don't want to mention names, but I, you know, I saw some of the bravest people who were defiant against the Sabah and the regime, but were profoundly ignorant about Iran or about art and they pontificated about it with such certainty and were willing to give their lives. And a couple of them did give their lives, not under the Shah's regime, they were killed by the Islamic Republic. So I I realized that the best thing I could do is sit from somewhere where I could uh, uh, study it, uh, where I could dedicate the time that I have 
the energy that I have, uh, the ability that I have, if any, to unraveling this. I truly realized that the most important thing I could do, and 40 years later, I absolutely believe that, that that's a true decision, still is true, valid. The best thing you could do is engage in this culture debate, because many of the things you were complaining about as being part of our DNA are really part of our culture. Mm. And only through scholarship, debate, open discussion, tolerance for people who disagree with us, tolerance for people who have a different lifestyle, tolerance for people who uh, think a little differently, this stopping from pontificating about things for which we don't take the time to study. The only way to end this fiasco is by engaging in systematic culture building. A final question, and uh, a personal one, if you will. You can take off the the, the scholar hat, um, uh, but, but a true but an earnest one. You, you have spent most of your life in the United States. You are a distinguished American a scholar, an academic at a top-notch university. Tell me what... Um, Tell me what being Iranian means to Abbas Milani today. Uh, it means uh, being part of uh, one of the most uh, remarkable civilizations the world has ever known. Uh, it means a responsibility to defend the uh, best aspects of that culture and criticize the worst aspects. And it means being a voice to the extent that is possible of the people in Iran who are under a brutal regime that does not allow the voices of the opposition to be heard. But it's a great uh, challenge, but it's also a great source of pride. I truly, earnestly take pride in the Iranian part of my heritage. I, I know the failings of our culture, but I also know that uh, it is truly one of the most remarkable uh, cultures in the world. Just go from, uh, it, you know, you refer to that uh, TEDx talk. Uh, this is a culture that has given us Zoroastrianism, mm. uh, which is one of the most influential religions in the world. Its profound impact on Abrahamic religions has not been fully appreciated. This is a, re- a culture that has been instrumental in creating multicultural empire, in promoting kind of uh, human rights. It's a culture that has given some of the best works of Sufi mysticism. It's a culture that has given some of the greatest miniatures, some of the greatest architects of the world. We are custodians of a remarkable culture. But we're also custodians of a culture that has killed thousands of Anushiravan that has killed thousands, of the Safavis that have killed thousands of Sunnis, uh, of a culture that has uh, engaged in uh, some of the worst forms of dogmatism. Out of this mix in the 21st century, um, we, the Iranian diaspora, because of the remarkable wealth that we have, uh, bear us, I, I think, a strike important responsibility to criticize 
where we need to criticize, to defend the rights of the Iranian people to live in a democratic society, and to let the world know that Iran is not this regime. Iran is Iran. Abbas Milani, I have been looking forward to this conversation. It didn't disappoint. It, uh, you've been so generous with your time. I thank you, and I, uh, I can only hope that we do it back in person next time in a post-COVID era. Absolutely. I look forward, and I wish you success. And uh, I will have as pleasant of a memory of this uh, conversation as I do of our first conversation. You're very thank kind. Thank you. Thank you for this. Khodafis. Khodafis. That was a conversation with historian, author, and director of Iranian studies at Stanford University, Dr. Abbas Milani. Dr. Milani joined us from Palo Alto, California. This brings us to the end of part one of our Rook series, Assessing the Pahlavi Dynasty. Please check out the other two parts of this series. Remember, you can subscribe on all of our platforms and become a patron of Rook at our website, Rook Media. You can give us feedback at info at rookmedia.com. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Mizunbashi. <laughs>